All right. We shall go to the Word of God tonight. And uh, I want you to come with me, please, to the book of 2 Samuel. We were in 1 Samuel this morning, but tonight we're in 2 Samuel chapter 9. That's just a coincidence, by the way. It wasn't contrived. It's not that I'm particularly reading through the book of 2 Samuel and 1 Samuel. I've already done that, but it's, it just so happens this is what we want to read tonight. So 2 Samuel chapter 9. Short little chapter. We'll read it together. Now David said... Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I might show him the kindness, show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? For there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He answered, At your service. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame on his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodibar. Then king David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodibar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Here is your servant. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely, surely show you kindness for Jonathan your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? And the king said to Ziba, Saul's servant said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet." The love of God finds expression in ways that are far, far beyond our comprehension. And God's grace is such that the least deserving qualifies. Aren't you glad that the very least deserving of God's grace qualifies for it? The story of Mephibosheth is one of those beautiful stories in the Old Testament, one of the most beautiful stories of grace, kindness, and love that was extended to a man. Now the story actually about Mephibosheth began earlier than this. Uh, just whenever he was a boy of five years old, 
His father Jonathan, his grandfather Saul, King Saul, were out in the valley of Jezreel, in Mount Gilboa, fighting the Philistines. And both Saul and Jonathan were slain. And whenever the word came back to his household that they were slain, uh, believing as would have been the course, believing that the Philistines would then come and look for any members of the royal household and slay them, slaughter them. Uh, the nurse, quite rightly, uh, took little Mephibosheth and began to run to flee as fast as she could to get away. But unfortunately, in the running, the little boy fell. And we presume he broke both his ankles, or at least badly twisted them to such a degree that for the rest of his life, he was lame on both his feet. And so she takes that little lame boy and she takes him away to Lodibar, which was in Gad across the Jordan, to a place where she felt would be safe as much as she possibly could be. And then David, many years now into his reign, things is going well for him, the kingdom is settled, he's prospered, things is on the up, and he's thinking and probably looking back to his wonderful relationship with Jonathan. And even though King Saul ended up hating David and was jealous of him, insanely jealous, yet David always showed him great respect and honored him as the anointed of God. And so while he's thinking this, uh, we see here obviously that he sends uh, for, he asks, is there anybody left of the house of, of uh, Saul? And uh, one of Saul's old retainers, Ziba, he says, yes, there actually there is. There's a little boy. The little boy, when he left here, when he was only five years old, his name is Mephibosheth. And he asks where he is. And we know then that whenever that Ziba finds him, whenever he comes, and whenever they meet one another, we know that he begins to show him kindness. The reason why he shows him this kindness is because David and Jonathan, many, many years prior to this, we don't know what age even Mephibosheth was at this time, but David and Jonathan, because of their wonderful relationship, entered into a covenant. That was a wonderful covenant. And in fact, I just want to read this little portion to let you see this. In First Samuel chapter 20, In 1 Samuel chapter 20, now this was one of those periods, of course, whenever uh, King Saul was insanely jealous of David and tried to kill him, uh, tried to pin him against the wall with a spear. And uh, Jonathan, of course, who was the, the natural successor uh, to the throne, but understood that God's uh, anointing to, for Saul to be king had long since been lifted off him, and had been put upon David. And, uh, you know, tremendous respect for Jonathan because knowing that his chance was gone forever and knowing that David would be anointed king, and yet he loved David and, and so desperately wanted his father not to act this way, but knowing what his father was like and knowing that he would probably do it again, uh, Jonathan promised David, look, I'll help you. If I feel my father's going to do this, I'll warn you. I'll tell you in good time so that you can escape. 
And so this is the conversation when we come into 1 Samuel chapter 20. In verse 9, let me break in in verse 9. Jonathan said, Be it far from you, for if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then I would not tell you. Then would I, then would I not tell you. Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me, or what if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go into the field. So both of them went out into the field. Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord God of Israel is witness. When I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, and indeed there is good towards David, and I do not send to you and tell you, may the Lord do so, and much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. And the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And you shall not only, now listen to this, and you shall not only show me kind, the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of his enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. Now Jonathan again caused David to vow, because he loved him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. So here is a covenant that these two men, when they were young men, had made. And Jonathan said, Whenever you become king, make sure that you don't kill me. Because often that's what happened in those days. The old dynasty would be wiped out. And he says, Not only that, make sure that you show the kindness that you would show me, make sure you show it to my family. Make a covenant. Let's make a vow that you will vow to me now, here and now, that you will show the kindness you show to me, that you will show it to my family, to my house. And David said, I'll do it. And so they made an agreement. They made a covenant. And here is the agreement of grace. And notice that Mephibosheth had absolutely nothing to do with this agreement of grace. He had nothing to do with this covenant whatsoever. Didn't even know that it happened. Didn't even know there was a covenant made for him. And there are untold millions outside this building tonight who does not know that the Father and the Son has made a covenant for them. A covenant of grace for them. They don't even know that. And that's why we have got to tell them. That's why we've got to knock doors or put things through letterbox or invite people to let them know that God's grace is available for them. Hebrews 7.22 says that Jesus himself is the guarantee of a better covenant. Thank God that you and I tonight have found out and has moved into the grace of God. We have discovered God's covenant of grace and we're living under his wonderful grace. Aren't you glad for that tonight? This is the agreement of grace. And then there is the acceptability of grace. The acceptability of grace. Mephibosheth was lame on both his feet as a result of a fall and all of us, as a result of the fall, all of us has a lameness. We're not whole people. 
until we come to Christ who makes us whole. Amen? And so, this is the acceptability of grace. Notice what he said in verse 8. What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I am? Psychologists today would say he had low self-esteem. He had a bad self-image and he really, truly did. Especially when he came into the presence of the king. And especially when he looked around and saw those whom David had surrounded himself with. The loveliest, the strongest, the bravest, the most gifted, the most talented. And here he is. Looking at his weaknesses, staring him in the face every single day of his life. Here he is, feeding him like a dead dog amongst these people. Well, this is the wonderful thing of grace, isn't it? Grace accepts warts and all, crippled feet and all, shortcomings and all, weaknesses and all. It doesn't matter, grace will accept us with all of those shortcomings. But it doesn't mean we have to stay there. It doesn't mean we have to can't improve. But grace will accept us in the first instance. He'll accept us. Remember the ones that Jesus chose? Tax collectors. The most despised Jews in all of Israel were the tax collectors. These are the ones that made themselves rich on the backs of their own people for the Romans. You imagine how despised they were? Can you imagine the rumor mill going around whenever Jesus chose one of them to be his disciples? Can you imagine whenever he had dinner with one of them? Can you imagine when he went to their homes? How could he possibly do that? These was the rankest, worst, foulest sinners in the whole land. But Jesus went to them, didn't he? Isn't it interesting that Jesus chose Galileans for his disciples? You know, there was a, a north-south divide in Israel as there is a north-south divide in most countries. And it was the Judeans in the south and the Galileans in the north and they despised one another. Particularly the Judeans, they did not like the Galileans. The Galileans was rural, they were country, they were rustic, their, their accents were entirely different. I mean, they stuck out a mile. And the Judeans were felt they were more sophisticated. They had the great city. They had the capital. And yet, out of all the disciples, there was only one who was a Judean. Guess who he was? Judas. The rest were Galileans. And so Jesus chose these men to be around him. And so, you think of the Mary Magdalene's, the Rahab's, the Ruth's. Think of Saul of Tarsus. <laughs> These are the ones that he chose, who said, I am the chiefest of sinners. These are the ones he chose. Ephesians 1 and 6 says, We have been accepted in the beloved, regardless of what we have been, regardless of what we have done. The grace of God whenever we receive Christ, has accepted us into the beloved. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 it says, Paul says, Do you not know 
that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor reviters, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But, and it's a big but, thank God for some of the buts in the Bible. But, you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. What a but. And the Lord could point to all of our lives. And as I've often said, if the Lord was put all of our sins in that big screen tonight, and he could do that, and he could point the finger at us and say, that's what you were like, but, but now you're washed. Now you're cleansed. Now my grace has come in. And what a difference that makes. See, this is the acceptability of grace. And then there is the accessibility of grace. There is no place out of the reach of God's love and grace. A pastor I know do you know where he got saved? Do you know where the Lord touched him? In a dirty, stinking toilet in a paramilitary pub in East Belfast. And he was as drunk as a skunk. And the Lord sobered him up in a second. And right in that stinking hole, that's where the grace of God found him and changed his life forever. You see, there is no place where the grace of God can't find a man or a woman. This is the accessibility of God's grace. David says, where is he? He's in Lodibar. Bring him here. Go get him. Fetch him here. And he brought him. It's way beyond Jordan. Way into God. Far away. But it doesn't matter how far away it is. Get him. Go for him and bring him here. Christ came to our Lodi bar, didn't he? He found us and he found all of us. Different places at different times. In different situations, in different states. But his grace found us. No place too far. No valley too dark. No pit too deep. He can find us. Where did he find Levi? At the receipt of custom. <laughs> That's where he found him. Where did he find Bartimaeus? At the roadside begging. Where did he find the man of Gadara? Living among the tombs. There's no place where he can't find. Where did he find Saul of Tarsus? While he was yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter. Imagine that. On the way to Damascus. That's where he found him. This is the wonderful acceptability of grace. And that Ethiopian eunuch out there in the wilderness, in the desert, 
struggling to understand the scroll of Isaiah. <laughs> Heart was searching and seeking for truth. And God plucked Philip out of a revival and said, go to the wilderness for one person. For just one person. Grace found him right there. Isn't it wonderful what grace can do? Grace found the Philippian jailer right there in the prison house. Right on his job, at work, in his place of employment, right there. That's where the grace of God found him. Anesimus hmm. ran away from his master, went to the big city, got into trouble, he ended up in jail. <laughs> And the Apostle Paul found him there. Do you think that was a coincidence that the Apostle Paul just happened to be a close personal friend of Onesimus' boss? I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that's a God incident, isn't it? And that's where the grace of God found that young man. See, this is the accessibility of grace. Perhaps you look at some of your family members or your loved ones or your friends or people you're praying for, and it seems to be they're beyond the reach of the grip of God, but they're not. And they seem to be go further away from God as they possibly can, and deeper into sin as they possibly could, but they're not outside the reach of the grace of God. And that's why we've got to continually pray for them. And then here's the assurance of grace. I'm sorry I'm, I'm alliterating tonight. You know, whenever you have all the A's or all the B's, you're alliterating. That's, I'm just happy to do that tonight. I don't do it all the time, but just for tonight. Here's the assurance of grace. Verse 7, David said unto him, Fear not. When God wanted to say something to someone that was unusual or do something to someone as well that was unusual, that was not normal, that was maybe extraordinary. He would always preface it with those two words, fear not. Whenever the angels announced the birth of Christ, the angel said, fear not. When the angel came to Zacharias, Father of John the Baptist said, Fear not. Fear not. Whenever Jesus appeared to the disciples walking on the sea and they cried out, thinking they had seen a ghost, because that was the fisherman's tales coming true, they thought. First thing Jesus said is, Fear not. It is I. Be not afraid. Fear not. Jesus said to Jairus, Do not be afraid, only believe. When he got back, his little daughter was dead, and the mourners come out, said, Don't trouble the master any further, it's too late. He said, Don't be afraid, just believe. And here David. Standing in, front of, standing in front of Mephibosheth, knowing that Mephibosheth is going to be afraid, feeling threatened because 
the kings in those days that have said twice tonight, they would generally wipe out the old dynasty, lest they would rise up in rebellion against the new one. No wonder he was afraid. He'd been hiding for all these years, probably thought nobody ever knew anything about him, and suddenly he's caught, and he's brought before the king. He must have come into that place trembling, with fear in his eyes. And David looked into his eyes and he says, Fear not. Don't be afraid. I'm not going to harm you. Everything's going to be okay. And this is the wonderful thing about grace. It assures. It reassures. It gives confidence. Timothy was just a young pastor. Very young pastor. Just starting out in ministry. He had quite a task. He had quite a church to undertake and it seemed to be that perhaps he maybe was of a nervous disposition maybe not too strong or robust emotionally certainly had trouble with his stomach we know that and it's interesting in 2 Timothy 2.1 Paul says therefore my son be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You look at your weaknesses. You look at your inadequacies. Maybe feel inferior. It says be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Look to the grace. See this is the assurance of grace. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10. Paul says. But I am what I am. By the grace of God. <laughs> he could have says, I do what I do by the grace of God. I say what I say by the grace of God. He could have said all of those things because that's what it means. I am what I am by the grace of God. And you can do what you do by the grace of God. And you can say what you say by the grace of God. And when you go out on Wednesday night to give out some leaflets, God may give you a wonderful opportunity. Maybe just to share a word and season to somebody. And you can do it by the grace of God that is in you. And you don't need to be afraid. Because God's grace will give you that assurance and that strength that you need. And then there is this abundance of grace. The abundance of grace. Look at Verse 7 again. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. He bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? And notice how the king just ignored that. The king said to Ziba, Saul's servant, said to him, he called him, said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to his house. You therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him. <laughs> Not only has he given me his land back, but now he's given me a whole pile of workers to work it. He said, well, what did uh, Ziba think of that? Well, this is another story, but Ziba wasn't very pleased, by the way. Even though he said in the story here, you know, all that your servants 
ask your servant to do, he'll do. But actually later on, he said it in rebellion against David because he was bitter in his heart. He had all those sons and all those servants and they're all working for this fellow from Lodibar. <laughs> He's probably wishing he'd never mentioned his name. But this is the abundance of grace, isn't it? Look at all that he's getting. He said, You therefore your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Glory to God. What an abundance. Never imagined in a million years. Remember, this is the grandson grandson of a king, son of a prince, in hiding with nothing, with nothing. And here he is, and now he has an abundance of everything. He has workers and servants and lands and food, a plenty. And not only that, he sits at the king's table every single day. How good is that? That's abundance, isn't it? And this is the abundance of God's grace. Philippians 4.19 My God shall supply all of your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. That's abundance, isn't it? John 10 and 10 I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Isaiah 55 and 7 talks about abundant pardon. God is not niggardly or miserly with his grace and his pardon and his mercy. He is abundant with it. Yeah. <laughs> Remember the words of the Apostle Paul? Whenever he prayed three times for that thorn to be removed, remember what God says? My grace is what? Sufficient. It is more than enough. It is more than you'll ever need. <laughs> That's abundance, isn't it? And this is the wonderful thing about the grace of God. There is no end. It is limitless if we can believe it. I love this story because I can just imagine this young man coming into the king's palace and looking all around and seeing the splendor and the grandeur and the opulence. And he's coming away from Lodibar. He's coming from a place of no pastures because that's what the word means. The place of no pastures. And he's coming from no pastures to green pastures. What a difference the place of no pastures. And that's where God found us, in the place of no pastures. And he brought us into green pastures. I'm sure in his mind, he was thinking to himself, goodbye, Lodibar, hello, Jerusalem. Never again would he have to go back there. That part of his life is over and it's finished forever. Now he's got palace and he's got his lands and he's got everything he'll ever need in his lifetime that's the abundance 
of God's grace. And then there is the authority of grace. The authority of grace. Verse 11 and verse 13. 11, 2, 13, Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Now remember, he's not biologically related to him. He's not biologically related to him, but he's treating him as if it was his one of his own biological sons. No different. Treating him exactly the same. So he said, Mephibosheth shall eat at my table as one of the king's sons. Isn't it wonderful? The authority of grace. That we should become the sons of God. First John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we, we should be called the sons of God. Can you imagine it? That we, sinners, lost, hopeless, should be called God's sons. Why? Because a covenant of grace was made for us and it was signed and sealed in the blood of Jesus. And that brings us right into the very family of God, that we are his sons and we are his daughters. Glory to God. Isn't it wonderful? Galatians chapter 4. What does that tell us? Verse 4. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you are an heir of God through Christ. Because we are sons, we are now heirs and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And we read just the other Sunday, we read in the scripture that God the Father loves us as he loves his own son. You couldn't get any closer than that. Sure you couldn't. You couldn't get any closer than that. So here we are, made sons and daughters of God. This is the authority of grace. And then finally, the appearance of grace. In verse 13, last verse it says, So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. Told you a few moments ago, David would have himself surrounded by the loveliest, the cleverest, the brightest, the most gifted, the strongest. But whenever they sat at that table, 
And whenever Mephibosheth came and sat down at that table and he pulled on his chair, those crippled feet were underneath the chair. And he looked exactly the same as everybody else. No different. No different. Something about the grace of God that doesn't just change us on the inside, but changes on the outside. We look differently. The grace of God does something to us. There's something different about us. When you see somebody after they get saved, they're different. It's hard to put into words, isn't it? There's something about their demeanor. Something about their stature. Something about their walk. There's something about how they, how they look. Because they're changed on the inside. Particularly take somebody who has lived a very sinful life and it has affected their, their body, physically. And then they get saved. And over that period of time, they begin to change. And their demeanor changes. Their stature changes. And there's a smile on their face. And there's a glow comes on. This is the appearance of grace. It does something. And this is why sometimes people may look at you and wonder about you and they may wonder, what's different about that person? What is different about them? Why do they look the way they look? Because of the grace of God. Because of the grace of God. And so here he is, a person of worth, a person of value, a person of distinction, and he's sitting at the king's table. <laughs> he can sit in any company now. He's fit for any company now. That's the wonderful thing about the grace of God. When a man or a woman, no matter what life they have lived in the past, when the grace of God comes in and they're saved by the blood of the Lamb, they can sit in any company because of the grace of God. Grace has changed us, hasn't it? And it changed this young man too. It changed his whole life. I can't begin to imagine when he went to bed that first night in the palace. I'm sure he never slept a wink. I'm sure he lay and looked up at the ceiling and laughing to himself and pinching himself. Can this really be true? You know, whenever Mian arrived at the airport, didn't she, Claire? She pinched herself. She says, Mom, you pinched me. She says, Why? He says, am I really here? She had been so looking forward to coming. Am I really here? And I imagine that Mephibosheth looked around and thought, am I really here? I'll wake up and this is just a dream. But it wasn't a dream, it's reality. And he was there. And he got up the next morning and no doubt David gave him new clothes. <laughs> Royal clothes. Maybe put a ring on his finger, I don't know. New quarters. And he had all these servants. Oh yes, he still was lame on his feet. That would remind him where he had come from. You know, the Bible says, do you remember the pit from whence you were dug? <laughs> we say that in Ballyclare where I come from, remember the bowl you were baked in. That means the same thing. In other words, don't get away above your station, you forget where you came from. Remember the bowl you were baked in. 
So as long as he had those lame feet, he could remember, yeah, that's where I came from. But look where I am now. Look what the king has done for me now. Isn't this wonderful? See, this is the grace of God, isn't it? Let's pray. Lord, we're so happy. We're so thankful. We're so grateful for your amazing grace. No wonder we sing about it. No wonder we preach about it. No wonder we think about it. Because it truly is almost beyond belief. Certainly beyond our comprehension. But almost beyond our belief. Only for the fact that we have experienced the grace of God. And how lovely and precious it is in our lives every single day. So Lord, we thank you, Lord, even though all of us are different. Some of us, Lord, we didn't maybe sin openly that everybody could see and point the finger. But yet, Lord, our sins were just as deep and just as real and just as condemning and just as hell-deserving. And yet in your mercy and in your grace you came and you cleansed us and you washed us and you brought us into the family of God. So we're thankful tonight, Lord, for your wonderful grace. Hallelujah. Now, Lord, let us leave this house tonight or with that thought in our mind and in our heart that you are a gracious and a good God. Thank you for it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.